last week when we were together, we began looking at this book, and we talked about uh, the song about Whitney Houston, I Will Always Love You. Uh, and if you want to go back and hear the context of that story, you'll have to listen to, to last week's sermon online. But, but, but what if you knew that that was how God felt about you? What if you knew that God had always loved you? And that he loves you now, and that he always will love you. That before you even existed, God loved you. And on into the future for eternity, God will love you. And even when you've done the prodigal thing and you've gone off to the far country for two or three hours or two or three weeks or two or three years, that God still loved you. Even in that time when, when thoughts of God never were even crossing your mind, that he still loved you and was determined to do what was necessary to make you well and whole spiritually and emotionally and one day even physically. And what if there were one doctrine, one theological idea, as it were, that communicated that truth in a nutshell? And what if that same doctrine, that same theological idea, when understood rightly, had the ability to make us humble and thankful? Had the ability to kind of stoke the fires of our worship for God? Had the ability to make us confident as we went out to serve others and to share the gospel? What if it also made us more sure of our salvation, if it increased our assurance? What if it made us hopeful about the work that God was doing in our lives and in the life of our church and in our city? One, one, one doctrine. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you be interested in that? Wouldn't you love that doctrine at the end of the day? Wouldn't you be excited about that doctrine? Everybody do this. Okay, I just set you up. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to remember you all said that in about 20 minutes, okay? You were excited about this doctrine we're talking about. Let's read Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. This is God's word. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance 
until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Let me pray for us. Uh, Father, we are, uh, we're going to deal with some amazing things today, uh, but I know these can also be difficult things and, and even troubling things, so I pray for your grace uh, to speak clearly, and I pray that you would be at work among us, opening uh, our eyes to your goodness and your grace, your love and your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, so what's the, this, this magical, exciting doctrine of, of which I speak? Uh, it's the doctrine of election or predestination. Uh, it's, it's sprinkled all throughout our text this morning. Now, this text is one big sentence in the Greek. Okay, I just read one sentence. Verses 3 through verse 14 in the Greek is, is one sentence. It's like Paul has received this really good news. All right, he's, he's won the lottery or his cancer's been cured. And he's telling everybody, he's sending this text out. And it's got lots of smiley faces and emoticons. And there are no punctuation. And there's like no periods in it. It's just this kind of run-on gush of happiness. All right? And that's what this text is. It, it just all runs together into this overflow of praise to and excitement about God. Uh, as you read this, Paul's excited about several things. He's excited about adoption. He's excited about our forgiveness of sins. Uh, he's excited about our heavenly inheritance. All of these spiritual blessings that he says we have in Christ. But the very first thing he gets excited about in this text, this, this explosion of praise, is election. Look in verse 4. He, that's God, chose us in him, that's Jesus, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That's deep. So here's what we're going to do. Uh, we're going to talk about the reality of election. We're going to talk about our objections to it because I know we're going to have them. Uh, we're going to talk about the purpose of election and then kind of the purpose behind the purpose. And then we'll see how this helps us. But let's start here with the reality of election. Now, I'll just say on the front that this is not an easy doctrine, uh, that Christians don't all agree about this, that you don't have to agree with me about this to be a believer. All right? You may walk out having heard this and, and disagree. That's fine. But here's what you have to ask yourself. Here's what I encourage you to ask yourself. Does the Bible actually teach this? Is, is, this really, is this really what the Bible teaches? And if it is what the Bible teaches, and I call myself a follower of Jesus Christ, and I believe that, that this is the Word of God, do I have the right to reject the parts of it I don't like? Or the parts of it I don't understand? Or the parts of it that make me uncomfortable? If I go through the Bible and I, and I take out all the things that sort of rub me the wrong way, at that point, is the Bible really the word of God or is it just the word of me? Kind of Justin's edited edition. I'll believe this and this and this and this. At that point, whose word is it? So my encouragement to you is as you're thinking about this, and if you haven't heard this before, it, those of you who brought like visitors today are all mad at me. You're like, why are you talking about this today, Justin? Well, it's where we are in the text. Um, 
just think about my, the, the question I want you to leave with is, is, is does the Bible actually teach this? All right. So the first thing I want us to see is the reality of election. Uh, even though this is not a concept we can fully wrap our minds around, it's taught with some regularity in the Bible, which is why we're, we're talking about it, not dodging it. All right. Uh, it's certainly all over the passage that we're looking at this morning. So let's, let's look at the passage and just look at the places it comes up in this passage. Verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Did we choose God? No, God chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. Now, what does that mean that he chose us in Christ. One writer put it this way, God put us and Christ together in his mind. God put us and Christ together in his mind. He determined to make us, who did not yet exist, his own children, through the redeeming work of Christ, which had not yet taken place. He determined to make us, who didn't yet exist, his own children, through the redeeming work of Christ, which had not yet taken place. And what's he saying? He's saying, if you're a Christian now, today, it's because God, before he even created the world, had already decided to connect you with Jesus in such a way that you would receive the benefits of what Jesus had done on the cross. That that was God's plan from eternity. All right, look at the end of verse Four, beginning of verse 5. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons. He didn't see that we would become sons. He predetermined that you would become his sons, that you would become his children. His predetermination, his predestination is the reason for our adoption. Now look at the end of verse 5. Um, Excuse me. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Why is it done? According to his purposes. According to the purpose of his will. I go down to the middle of verse 9. I'll start at the beginning of verse 9. Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose. All right, there you go again. God has a plan. God has a purpose. This is all done according to his purpose. Now look at verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now that was even bigger, all right? Here's this God who works everything, everything according to the counsel of his will. Um, outside of Paul, Jesus in John chapter 6, verse 65 says to his disciples, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. I think of the Old Testament. Abraham is just kind of doing his own thing, worshiping idols, and God grabs him. He chooses him and makes him his follower so that he will then become a blessing to the world. Now these 
passages I think are pretty plain. They're not saying God like looked into the future and he saw what we were going to do and then he chose us because he saw what we were going to do. No, they're saying God, before the foundation of the world, chose to save us, chose to work in our lives simply of his own good pleasure and grace and love. Now, I think anyway that it's, it's pretty plain, and that's just a few examples for you to, to go home and think about. You can go home and read Romans 9 and think about this some more. Uh, I, I think it's pretty plain the Bible teaches this. But it goes without saying, like even though kind of like I've just kind of thrown a grenade in the room, at, at, at best, there's some things that are kind of like, oh, I don't know about that. And at worst, there are things about that that kind of make us really angry when we think about that. So I want to talk about a couple of our objections, and I know there are more than these, but I just want to throw a couple of the, the common ones for, out for us to think about. The first objection you have when you hear this is, well, that's not fair. That's not fair. That's, that's not just for God to do that. Now, I don't have this printed for you, but, but, but Paul deals with this in Romans chapter 9. Listen, listen real quickly to verse 14 of Romans 9, where, where Paul has been talking about this same concept. Verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. He's saying, no, God isn't unjust. By no means is he unjust to choose some and to reject others. Why not? He says in verse 15, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Now, what does that statement assume? In other words, what, what is mercy? Right, let's think about mercy for a minute. What's mercy? Is mercy something that we're owed? We're, we're never owed mercy. That's why we call it mercy. All right, not something we earned. If, if you owe me $500, Mark Smith, don't you owe me $500? Okay. If you owe me $500, I'm not obligated to cancel that debt just because you're like, will you cancel the debt? I'm not obligated to cancel that debt. And I'm not being unfair to demand that you pay that bill, right? You, you, you don't really, he doesn't really owe me. I'm not, I'm not being unjust to demand that you pay me the debt that you owe me. I would be perfectly just to say, you, you really got to pay me this bill. You owe me $500. You need to pay me $500. If I canceled the bill, if I canceled the debt, that would be mercy right? But you weren't owed mercy. There was no obligation for me to give you mercy. I was under no obligation to cancel the debt. Uh, Paul's statement here assumes that we don't deserve to be chosen, that we don't deserve grace. It assumes that we deserve, what we deserve is the exact opposite. Uh, it, it assumes what he had said earlier in Romans 3, and I'll just read a, a, sec, a section of this, Romans 3.10, his statement there assumes this, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one good does good, not even 
1. Uh, our Romans chapter 6. For the wages of sin is death. In other words, what Paul's statement assumes there is that there is no one good. And what we've worked for, what we've actually earned is the wages of our sin, which is death. But that's what each person is actually deserving of. And so to come back to election, election is like offensive, right? When we first hear it. But what the Bible says is if you and I actually got what we deserved, if God was fair the way we all kind of say, well, God should be fair. Okay, if you want God to be fair, then what we actually deserve is hell. That's what we've earned by our works. We've earned hell and, and nothing less than that. And so often we'll kind of like, well, why did God choose me and God didn't choose his ne my neighbor, et cetera, et cetera. The real question is, it, it isn't why doesn't God choose that person over there. It's why did God choose anybody at all? Why did he save anyone at all? Why did he choose me? Why did he arrange the circumstances of my life so that I could hear the gospel? Why did he arrange the circumstances of my life so that I believe the gospel when I heard it. Uh, Tim Keller uses the following example. He says, remember the rich person who chose 20 inner city kids to guarantee their full college tuition. The analogy is not perfect, but the point is that there were literally thousands of equally worthy recipients. We also know that the rich man could have helped a lot more than 20, but did anyone say that since he had helped some, he was being unfair to anyone else? No, he had no particular obligation to help any of the children. Since all he gave was sheer mercy, there could be no talk about his being unfair. And then Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it this way. Paul is saying if you want to bring in the notion of justice very well, you will get your wages, you will get what you deserve, and the wages of sin is death. If God's salvation were totally a matter of justice and righteousness, all would be damned. Nobody has any claim on God's mercy. The fact that anybody has ever received mercy is entirely because of the character and nature of God. The real mystery is not that everybody is not saved, but that anybody is saved. That is the mystery. God owes nothing to anybody. And so I, I say all that to say this. If your objection to election is that it's not just, it's not fair, then be careful what you wish for. Be careful what you wish for. Uh, second objection is, is that, that that just makes everybody robots, right? They're like, what about, what about free will? It's a free will objection. Uh, Jonathan Edwards once said that nobody truly has free will because our will is simply an expression of our preferences, which are an expression of our character. All right. Our will just can't go and choose things that are out of line with our character and, and who we are at our, our deepest level. And who are we at the deepest level? Well, same bad news again. Ephesians 2, we'll get to in a couple of weeks, says that we're all actually dead in our sins. Not just kind of disabled by our sins, not hampered by our sins, but actually dead in our sins. And so what that means is that while we might be theoretically free to turn to God, 
we don't have the ability to turn to God unless he gives us that ability, unless God brings us a life. Let me illustrate it like this. This is the way we tend to illustrate the gospel. All right, here, here, here's the gospel. Um, it's like you've been in a plane crash and you're in this icy river and you're thrashing about and Jesus comes by in a helicopter and he throws you a rope and he says, grab the rope. And you can grab the rope and be saved or you can not grab the rope and drown. And it's, and it's all up to you. All right, that's, that's kind of the way we tend to think about the gospel. I think this would be more biblical and realistic. A more realistic picture would be that you've actually been in a plane crash. You've drowned already. You're sinking to the bottom of the river. A shark has come through and grabbed you. And it's carrying you around in its, in its mouth. It's a freshwater shark. It's watching the river. Um, it's, 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 so this shark is actually, it has you in its mouth. And Jesus jumps out of the helicopter and kills the shark and pulls you out of its mouth and swims you to shore and brings you back to life. That's a more realistic picture of what actually happens when we come to faith in Jesus. Because we're not just kind of treading water. Ephesians 2 says we're actually dead. We're dead spiritually. We're dead in our sins. And left to our own choices, we're not going to grab that rope. We have no ability to grab that rope. Now, you might say at this point, well, what's the point of, like, why are we here? You know, why are we trying to persuade, why do you try to persuade people to believe the gospel? What's the point in sharing the gospel and calling people to faith in Jesus if the only people who can respond are the ones that, that God kind of resuscitates? Well, the Apostle Paul was able to hold God's sovereignty in this and human responsibility in a healthy tension that we a lot of times have trouble with. Like he was able to teach election and at the same time say, you need to believe the gospel. And we need to send people out to believe the gospel. And Jesus, who is the same one who said, nobody can come to me unless the, the, the Father has given it to him, enabled him to come to me. Jesus also weeps over Jerusalem because they won't come to him. All right, both of those are equally true. Both of those are in the Bible. Uh, the Apostle Paul can say he wished he was accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of his brothers. In the very next chapter, after Romans 9 and Romans 10, after God has, excuse me, Paul has just finished saying, God has mercy on whomever he has mercy, he has compassion on whomever he has compassion. He then turns around and says in chapter 10, but how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. You see that? Paul didn't say, all right, here's election, and now God's going to do what he's going to do, so I'm going to go watch the game. Paul, Paul thought, this is unbelievable. God is actually saving dead people and bringing them to life, and he's using my foolish preaching and other people's foolish preaching to do that, and so we're going to go do that. And we're going to go plead with people to embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. Think about those. A couple of objections, a couple of responses. Now, the third point here. What's the purpose of election? 
What's the purpose of election? Look at verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And then in verse 5, in love he predestined us for adoption as sons. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, then what that means is from all eternity, God has planned to make you his child and to make you holy. That that's been in, in God's mind forever, to make you his child and to make you holy. Um, a, a couple of illustrations. Uh, imagine someone enjoys restoring old cars. And so they go to the, the junkyard a couple of times a year, and they find a wrecked, beaten-up car, and they take great delight in restoring it. You know, putting a new hood on it, maybe putting a new engine in it, uh, giving it a new paint job, fixing everything that needs to be broken, restoring it. And then they take great delight in taking it out on, on beautiful days like we've had this weekend and, and, and driving it, going out up to the Blue Ridge Parkway showing off their car, taking it to car shows, and say, look at this car that I've restored. That's, that's my car. Isn't that, a great, isn't that a great car? Or imagine a couple going to an orphanage and seeing a child and saying, I want to take that child home, a child who has no family, and I want to make them a part of my family, and I want to care for them and raise them and train them and give them my family name. I want to make them my child. Now, imagine God looking at a group of people who he knows are going to reject him, people who are running away from him, people who would rather do their own thing and be their own God, and God looks at them, these people who are running away from him, and he makes a decision to grab them. Like they're, they're going out the door. And he makes this, I'm going to grab that person who doesn't want anything to do with me. And I'm going to send my son to die for him so that his sins can be forgiven. And I'm going to send my spirit and make it dwell within that person to change them. I'm going to give that person access to my throne room so that he can come in and talk to me. I'm going to allow them to call me Abba, Daddy, Father. And I'm going to give them full inheritance in my kingdom so that everything I have is theirs. The person who's running out the door, I'm going to grab and I'm going to bring back in. That's the purpose of election. That's the purpose of election. That, that broken, running rebels would be made healthy sons and daughters of the king. That's not justice. That's mercy. And again, at this point, the question is not, why didn't God choose others? It's why in the world would God choose me? Why, when I was blind, would I be made to see? Why did he snatch me from the flames? Why didn't my brokenness and sin drive him away? Why has he continued to pursue me? And the purpose Behind the purpose is this in verse 5, in love. In love. In love he predestined me for adoption. In love. Why did he choose you? 
Because he loves you. Why did he love you? Because he chose to love you. He loved you because he loved you and he will always love you. It wasn't earned. It wasn't deserved. But neither can you do anything to make him stop loving you. If you're a believer this morning in Jesus Christ, you can know that God the Father has loved you from eternity past, that he loves you now, and that he will never stop loving you. Now, how does this help? All right? I want to say more than, I want more than just for you to kind of go, okay, I guess the Bible teaches that. I want you to actually think about how this is actually helpful to you uh, as a believer in Jesus Christ. And maybe even helpful to you if you're not a believer. We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, first of all, how's this helpful? This makes grace actually grace. All right? God doesn't just throw the gospel rope out there and say, all right, it's up to you now. It doesn't just, there's not just this possibility of salvation. He actually saves from start to finish. That's grace. That, that, that'll make you right a hymn, right? That's grace. Even our faith, we have to have faith in Jesus, right? Even that faith, Ephesians 2 is going to tell us, is a gift from God. That God gives us faith so that we can believe the gospel. Secondly, this should make us very humble. All right, this, this doctrine, if this doctrine makes you prideful, then you don't understand it. This doctrine should actually make you very humble. It's not that I was good enough or smart enough or wise enough to choose Jesus. It's not that I was better than other people and I had the good sense to choose him. God actually chose me. God actually chose me. There's, there's an old hymn, many of you probably heard it, I have decided to follow Jesus. Uh, and that's, that's a good hymn. And you do have to believe in Jesus and you do have to, to follow him. But you decide to follow him because he's enabled you to do that. Because he's given you the ability to believe and to follow him. And so here's how one group rewrote that hymn to express a, a deeper truth. They changed the words to this. They, they put them this way. I never wanted to follow Jesus. Instead of I have decided to follow Jesus. I never wanted to follow Jesus. I never wanted to follow Jesus. I never wanted to follow Jesus. He rescued me. He rescued me. No turning back. No turning back. See, if you, if you get that, that doesn't make you proud. That won't, that won't make you incredibly humble. Now, thirdly, it'll make you worship. It just leads to worship. When Paul finished explaining all this, this is what he said. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For, he is known, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. That's from Romans chapter 11. It leads to worship. It also leads to confidence and assurance. See, if you believe this, what this means is you don't have to go around worrying about, did it take that time when I walked the aisle? Or, or did, I, did, I, did I say the prayer right? 
Or is my faith really strong enough? Or is God maybe going to give up on me or stop loving me? Is, 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 is he just going to say one day, I've had enough? He's decided to save you from before the foundation of the earth. Do you really think he's going to give up on you because you didn't have your quiet time this week? He's decided to save you from before the foundation of the earth. Some of us have experienced this, right? And in bigger ways than not just not having our quiet time for the week. We've sort of kind of like left the reservation for a while in terms of our Christianity. And we're just kind of doing our own things. And, and even in the midst of that, kind of on the backside of that now, we know that God kept after us that whole time. And he kept pursuing us and he drew us back to himself. There's a there's an old poem called the, <laughs> the Hound of Heaven that describes God's pursuit of his people. Uh, J.R. Tolkien, who wrote The Lord of the Rings, said this about the, that poem. As the hound follows the hare, never ceasing in its running, ever drawing nearer in the chase, with unhurrying and steady pace, so does God follow the fleeing soul by his divine grace. And though sin or inhuman love, away from God, it seeks to hide itself. Divine grace follows after, unswervingly follows after, till the soul feels its pressure, forcing it to turn to him alone in that never-ending pursuit. Uh, fourthly, while it leads to confidence and assurance, it also pushes back against presumption. And, and what I mean is this, if you're elect, you're elect, Paul says, unto holiness. God does make his children holy, and that's slow, and there are gaps in that at times, but he's at work. He's at work. Are you, are you repenting? Are you daily looking to Jesus in faith? Uh, fifthly, it makes me hopeful. It makes me hopeful that, you know, if I look just at me and my ability to kind of carry this Christianity thing through to the end, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to despair because there ain't a whole lot in me. But this makes me hopeful that God is at work in my life. This makes me hopeful that God is doing something in this church. This makes me hopeful that God is doing something in this city. Because it's about him and not about me. And then finally I would say, this, even if you're not a believer, this sort of backs you into a corner. And it really forces you to see that salvation is of the Lord. Like, like, what are you going to do, all right? If, if this is true, so what do you do? You're like, well, do I just sit around and wait? No. It says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ is what the Scripture teaches. It, it backs you in the corner, and you say, well, there's nothing I can do. So all there is left for you to do is to cry out to God that he would have mercy on your soul, that he would even give you faith in Jesus Christ. So election sort of pushes us. It pushes you to cry out in the midst of your sin, to cry out to God. Well, is that fun? Uh, the reality of election, some objections, the purpose, the purpose behind the purpose, some ways it helps us. Let me make a couple comments and then we'll wrap up. Uh, if you're here and, and you never heard this before, please come back. Um, we, we, don't, we don't talk about this every week. Um, but we talk about it because it's in the Bible. And that's one of the things we want to do at Grace is we want to work through the books of the Bible and we don't want to skip the things that make us uncomfortable or things we might not like. 
Because if that's what we do, then at that point it's, it's my word and not his word. And so we want to be challenged by the Bible. But, but come back. We don't have to like talk about this all the time. Uh, if, if you're here and you're like, well, again, how, how do I get to be a Christian then if I'm dead in my sins and I can't grab the rope? What do I, what do, I do? The Bible talks about election, but the Bible also issues this call to repent and believe the gospel. It doesn't tell us to sit around going, well, am I you know, trying to figure this out? It just says, repent, believe, trust in Jesus. That's what Paul says in, in verse 13. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Here's how you became a Christian. You believed the gospel. And so the invitation to us today is to believe. The invitation to you is to believe, to call out to Jesus to ask him to forgive your sins, to claim him as your savior. The scriptures teach us that everyone, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Will you call on the name of the Lord? Will you call on the name of Jesus? Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would... Um, protect us from anything wrong I might have said today, but that you would work in our hearts also to receive that which is true, even if it's a, a hard pill to swallow. And God, I, I pray that you'd even begin to help us to see that this, this shouldn't be hard so much as it should be delightful, that we would delight to know that you have loved us from before the foundation of the world, that you've always loved us and you always will love us. And we pray that that would encourage us and give us hope today. Make us indeed to be worshipers of you and those who love you and love our neighbors. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.